Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and journalist who brings you the latest military and defense news twice a week, while also adding in a little motivation, wisdom, and history. I'm also a nice guy who's working as hard as I can to unite this country. I feel like our division and animosity toward the other side, so to speak, is the greatest threat our country faces. Every week, I do my best to bridge this great divide that separates our incredible country, while also reminding each of us that most of us are being played by divisive political and news figures who are ripping apart this country just so they can reach a higher office or gain more followers and add dollars. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. While we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years. And it's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. We need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the September 27th edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. I'm going to try to cover several things in this episode, including some national strategy news involving the U.S., obviously, uh, some news about Iran, some news about Russia and Ukraine, and then maybe some news about China and some tech news if we get time. Plus, as always, we'll do the motivation and wisdom at the end. So a lot to cover, and we'll start with the strategy news that I wanted to discuss first. This news comes from one of uh, my listeners. They didn't want to be named, but uh, I wanted to thank this person for sending it. I get a lot of great tips from some of our listeners, and I really appreciate it. And I hadn't seen this yet. It's a video from the Army Training and Doctrine Command, which is called, uh, goes by Tradoc or Trudoc, depending on how you hear it pronounced. But they put out a video, it's about five minutes long, about the threats that they are preparing for. Now, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, they're headquartered in Virginia, and they're charged with overseeing training and development of operational doctrine. And so it's about a five-minute video. It's a great watch. I've got it in the source notes, but I wanted to discuss just a couple or three-ish things that it talked about. Um, I just grabbed some bullet points from it. The video talks about that they see the U.S. in a return to great power competition, and that as the years pass that will go from having dealt with a lot of counterinsurgency warfare, which of course we've done in um, Afghanistan and in Iraq after their government was dislodged, to, and they call it near-peer, meaning someone that's almost as good as us, and eventually peer adversaries, which I can't imagine that means anyone other than China. Some of the things that is discussed in that video is the ability to win without fighting, of course. That's what deterrence is. It's what everyone prefers to do. Also, to get better at standoff capabilities. As we've seen in Ukraine, more and more fighting is done from great distances, and um, often you'll never even see the enemy. Also discussed in it are some items such as advanced electronic warfare. We all know that every country is developing the ability to try to block transmissions of communications, as well as hacking. There's obviously increased focus on precision long-range fires. We've seen how the HIMARS or the multiple launch rocket systems in Ukraine have completely changed that uh, battle happening over there. Uh, the increased use of UAVs, 
um, the unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, obviously cyber attacks, and listed as possible uh, adversaries or threats are China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran, as well as radical ideologues in the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. And Africa is something at some point I've got to talk about a little bit more. Uh, the video says that China is increasingly showing assertive behavior and that Iran can contest the U.S. in all domains, including cyber. It goes on to talk a bit about with Iran, that Iran has a robust cyber force, that they have ballistic missile capabilities. And, you know, as a reminder, Iran launched ballistic missiles at U.S. bases. It's been a couple of years ago. I can't remember the exact date. I'd have to look that up. But when Trump was uh, still president, thankfully, the American troops hit the bunkers and there were some concussions and headaches, depending on, you know, it was kind of political, of course, about how those um, injuries were discussed. But at any rate, we were very lucky that missiles as large as those didn't cause more casualties. They talked about in the video Iran's ability to support arm and train proxies through their CUDS force and that they've done that effectively in the Middle East and elsewhere. So it goes into a bit about that. And so it ends by saying that the U.S. faces an extraordinarily dangerous world filled with a wide range of threats that have intensified in recent years, that the U.S. faces the threat of a reduced global U.S. prestige, and that U.S. forces through 2030 will likely face advanced equipment, concepts, doctrine, and tactics in flashpoints and trouble spots around the world. So it's a great video. If you've got a few minutes, you can find it in my source notes. Of course, that's at stanormitchell.substack.com. You can watch that video, and um, it's a well-produced video. It's probably, I don't know if they do these every 10 years or every five years as they realign the army to face whatever the upcoming threat is, but it's a great video, worth watching, and um, I hope you found it interesting that this is what um, the leadership in the Army and the Defense Department see as our likely threats in the coming years. So there you go. That's uh, what we're realigning for. So let's move from strategic issues facing the U.S. to the protests that are starting to get more and more serious over in Iran. They began um, seven, eight days ago when a 22-year-old Kurdish woman was taken by the morality police and was taken to, to a detention center to be educated, but um, during some of that abuse, um, she died, and the Iranian government claimed she had a, a heart attack, and of course, the folks who knew her, her family and others, claimed that she was beaten by officers and killed. Either way, she ended up in a coma for three days, and as that news started to come out about her death, the... Uh, population has become, you know, just overcome with anger, really. Um, you can see all kinds of videos that have been on Twitter and YouTube, and it's honestly pretty impressive bravery by many of these, especially the women seem to have been leading this. It's as if they finally had enough of some of the strict morality police who can see a woman who has any hair, you know, showing and they can just beat the woman for, you know, breaking some of their Islamic laws that they have there. And 
the the women have just had enough. So they've been cutting off their hair. They've been burning their hijabs, which is their head coverings. And there's been dozens of cities with with protest that is being met by violence from police and authorities. Depending on which news story you read, there's been more than 40 killed, maybe more than 70-something I read in another story. But definitely a lot of unrest, and there's a lot of uncertainty going on. The U.S. government has sanctioned some of the folks involved with the morality police and some of the leaders. Of course, from 10,000 feet, if you step away from it a bit, there's obviously a lot of background noise because as Iran pursues nuclear energy and or a nuclear weapon, the pressure has been growing from the West, including the United States, also from Israel, to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. We literally just covered the TRADOC um, threat analysis. Iran is considered a serious threat. There have been, obviously, incidents just even a few weeks ago. I mentioned on a podcast they were still in drones. So there's always constant tension with Iran. So this is definitely something to keep an eye on. I hope that the people there can um, rid themselves of an unjust government and find some type of more free society, whether it's a democracy or or whatever that might be. But I know that a lot of the Iranian people have been under strict government laws that many don't support. And we'll keep an eye on that. I'm not sure what will end up happening. Anyone who says they know what's going to happen, they're probably not telling you the truth. No one really knows. So either the Iranian government will continue to use police forces and military forces and live ammunition to put this down or... Maybe like the Arab Spring, they might kill enough innocent civilians that the civilians decide to do more than just protest. So we'll keep an eye on that. That's all I know at this time. That's all pretty much anybody knows, but we'll see what happens. Now we move to Ukraine-Russia news, and I have to break a promise I said that I would not do anymore, and that is discuss nuclear weapons. But it is just incredible how much nuclear weapons have been discussed since the last episode And so I just need to say one thing about it. My position remains unchanged, that the likelihood of use is very low. But Putin and the Russian authorities are seeing that every time they mention them, the media in the West absolutely freaks out. And so that adds pressure to our government to be careful to avoid nuclear weapons or World War III or whatever horrible thing. And so he is effectively constantly bringing them up. We'll share one quick thing that I found in a Financial Times article, and this just summarizes again what I have said, Um, and it says, The logistics of deploying nuclear weapons is complex, time-consuming, and would be easily picked up by Western intelligence satellites. That means that Putin can intensify the nuclear threat by taking several steps before getting to the point of actually using the weapons. It would also allow the West to adjust its preparedness. And there's a quote from a professor, Simone Miles, who's an assistant professor at Duke's University's Sanford School of Public Policy. And Simone says, Russian nuclear weapons are staged in hardened shelters across the country. The process of transitioning to readiness, mating warheads to delivery platforms, would generate a great deal of observable phenomenon for U.S. intelligence. And 
goes on to say that Washington or our government would, would, as these things started to happen, make very clear how bad an idea it would be. There was also an interview from the Secretary of State that, again, emphasized there's lots of ongoing discussions with various government officials in Russia warning them not to do this. So, again, I don't think this is going to happen, but I think Vladimir Putin has figured out that he can scare the West and basically take advantage of an ill-informed public by ginning up fear. So I think that's what's happening. Moving along, let's talk about the mobilization news. As you recall, Vladimir Putin called up 300,000 reservists. He said in his speech it would mostly be folks who had past military experience. The mobilization has gone disastrously. They've been grabbing people who didn't have military experience. experience. Um, there have been some people wrongly grabbed. There have been protests. And there have been quite a few videos circulating on social media that initially it was stated that these Russian soldiers would receive two weeks training. And if you recall in a previous podcast, I explained how in America our basic training and boot camps are at least two months, sometimes three in the Marine Corps. And then even after that, you get additional training, even if you're going to be infantry. It takes a while to learn how to do all the skills involved in, in being a good warfighter. And Russia had said at the time they'd give them two weeks. Well, since then, turns out you didn't quite get two weeks if you were one of those called up. There are videos circulating on social media. I've posted one in the source notes of buses already arriving in Ukraine with Russian replacements. I mean, these folks got almost no training. Some of them don't even have the right uniforms. There are videos taken where soldiers were told to buy their own emergency kits as far as gauze and other types of items you might need if you were wounded. So they've gotten almost no training. They've already been sent to the front lines. You can find numerous videos of this. The Russian people have not reacted well to any of this. They, uh, they've they attacked some various recruiting centers. I've got a story linked in the source notes that shows that 54 recruiting centers have been set on fire since the announcement. There were 17 in one day, but there was also a gunman who inside one shot a recruiting officer. So folks aren't happy. I've got a like I said, I got a link to that in the source notes. And what's crazy is as these Russian folks have tried to flee the country, there are photos that show a 10-mile line at one Russian border as men mostly, but families as well, try to flee Russian mobilization. 10 miles. So, And actually, they believe the traffic jam went further than that, but the satellite photo didn't show an area larger than 10 miles. So so let's talk about this mobilization just a little bit. I haven't really seen much reasons for why it will, would be effective. Now, we've talked in previous episodes about the pressure from the nationalists in Russia who don't want to lose. But as I covered in a previous podcast from some one analyst, but several have said this, these troops aren't going to be very effective. At best, they're going to be used in the defense and there's just not a lot you can do with untrained folks. But something I came across finally made some sense for why Vladimir Putin is doing this. 
This comes from Tom Nichols. I've quoted him numerous times before. He's a retired professor at the U.S. Naval War, War College, and he writes for The Atlantic. And he wrote this article for The Atlantic. And like I said, it's the best explanation I've seen yet for why the mobilization makes a little bit of sense. And in it, he says, and I will quote from part of it, the answer, and he talks, I should set it up by saying that he talks about that Russians aren't engaged in this war. They don't care. They don't care about the Nazis that Putin has claimed is in Ukraine. They don't even care about Ukraine. So a lot of folks have been ignoring it. And then once Ukraine had this amazing offensive, they've had to realize that, okay, we have to pay attention. Russia's being embarrassed. And then the pressure from the nationalists began. So he kind of summarized some of, the, some of that stuff. But here's what he says that finally, in my mind, starts to make a little sense. He says, the answer for Putin is to annex Ukrainian land while claiming that the war is now, quote, to defend our motherland, its sovereignty, and territorial integrity, making it a holy war to protect Russia itself against Ukraine, NATO, and the entire West. Putin then turns Ukraine into, quote, Russia by taking Russian men from their families, shipping them to Ukraine, getting them killed, and letting their blood soak into the dirt. He could then say to his own people and to the world that the buried bones of so many Russian men make Ukraine hallowed ground from which Moscow will never retreat. He explains a little bit about how Russia has done this in the past, back when it was the Soviet Union, and he used the example of Czechoslovakia and the history of World War II. I'm not going to get too much into that, but this actually makes some sense to me, what he explained, which is, let's send Russian men down there. More of them will be killed, and at this point we say, hey, Ukraine and the West and NATO, as he says, which is obviously a lie, but they have killed Russian men who are defending Russian territory. Because in his mind, even though he seized the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass region that we've talked about a lot, as well as the southern part around Crimea, all the way back in 2014, if he... If enough Russian soldiers die there, he can now say, they attacked us. That's our land, and we have to mobilize and fight for this land. And if he can make it a West versus East, West versus Russia type battle, then maybe he can rally the, the Russian people to sacrifice more and to support him in this war, which was obviously a war of choice by his. It was a foolish mistake. But the Russian people historically have shown that they will bear great sacrifices as part of a national call. And so I thought that was just a brilliant point that Tom Nichols has made. For me, at least, it's the first time the mobilization has made some sense that you send these bodies down there, you let enough of them die, and maybe enough mothers and fathers will rally around the flag, so to speak, and support Vladimir Putin. There's also the other risk, of course, if enough of these men are killed, then maybe the people will rally against Putin. But at this point, Putin knows he's playing a losing hand, and so maybe that was the thought he had when he announced this mobilization. Love to hear your thoughts on that. You can always email me, um, reach out to me on social media. I love hearing from you guys, but I'd love to hear your thoughts if you think that might actually explain it. There are two more things I want to throw in about Ukraine, but before we do, let's do this. Just a quick reminder, 
If you love what you're listening to, please consider subscribing. Make sure to visit my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email so you'll never miss a show. All of my podcasts are free, but if you really want to be a rock star and support what we're doing, you can sign up at my Substack for $5 a month. You can cancel that at any time. Not only will that help make this work sustainable, but it will also get you the Tuesday post on Tuesday. Those Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day unless you're a paid subscriber. It's my hope that this small delay will encourage my big-time fans and supporters to throw a few bucks in the hat to support what we're doing here if they can. At the same time, it doesn't really penalize you if you can't make that $5 a month payment. At most, you're waiting just one extra day for the content. Thanks again, guys, for all your incredible, fantastic support. I really do appreciate each and every one of you. The next thing I wanted to discuss regarding Ukraine was the fighting near Kherson. That's, of course, the part to the south that, uh, you know, the east and the Donbass region has had those tremendous gains, the huge offensive that's made all the news. But just as a reminder, initially all the discussion had been about a drive to the south, and that had actually caused a lot of Russian forces to pivot and reposition. The Russians had moved in some airborne troops. And there hasn't been a lot of news coming out of the southern part, which is crucial because long-term, Ukraine would like to take back the Crimean Peninsula, which has an important naval base and was used as part of the uh, launching pad for the most recent invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, Russia wants to hold on to that under all circumstances. They built a massive bridge there. We discussed that in a previous podcast and a massive train. That's It's like a train rail that goes right next to the bridge. So it's crucial that Russia holds on to it from Russia's point of view. Obviously, the Ukrainians want to take it back. I wanted to just highlight a little bit of the fighting that's happening there that the New York Times had a great article about um, because, like I said, there has been fighting that's been continuing. It's been ugly and bloody, and some of Russia's best troops are there. And because, as I said, the Ukrainians had talked about going south, the Russians have really prepared their defenses there. So let me just read this. The fighting is grinding, grueling, and steep in casualties, perhaps the most heartbreaking battle in Ukraine Ukraine right now. Russian forces are deeply dug in here. The Russians have built formidable defenses, trenches zigzagging along irrigation canals, fortified bunkers, pillboxes, foxholes, even tank trenches carved out of the earth by bulldozers and covered with concrete slabs that enable the Russians to blast shells from positions that are very difficult for the Ukrainians to hit. Despite the high stakes, there is little face-to-face combat between the two sides, like there was in the early day of the war in the suburbs of Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. Each Ukrainian soldier along the southern front carries an assault rifle, but few have fired their weapon. So that's all, all I'm going to read of that article. But the article talks about that, you know, we've we've talked a lot about drones and Basically, this fighting in the south is, and there's videos you can see of it online, there's just a lot of indirect fires, what it's called in the military, but a lot of times you won't even see your enemy. You will be spotted by perhaps an observer on the other side, maybe a drone, and all of a sudden artillery fire starts coming in, so you'll see numerous videos of Ukrainians who are trying to push forward, and they are taking some land, but it is horrific fighting and it can be demoralizing to never see your enemy 
there was um, many articles and books even written about this in Vietnam that a lot of our soldiers who would go there, you would just run into booby traps or punji pits. You'd never find the enemy, and it was just very frustrating. And that kind of fighting is it's almost just heartbreaking because you'll see your buddies getting hit by artillery rounds or indirect fire, and you don't even see the enemy. You'll sometimes see... And this goes back to like World War One, but you'll sometimes see machine guns firing over a hill. And so essentially you could be on the other side of a hill and rounds coming in and hitting your impact or impacting near you or hitting you. And they're being aimed by someone who can see them, but you can't even see the guy firing the machine gun. You see a hill in front of you and rounds are coming over the hill and they're impacting near you. And that is like the most frustrating thing in the world because you can't find a target to shoot at you just have to endure and keep pushing forward so just wanted to highlight that they are still fighting in the south part of me thinks now um putin has said that they can't retreat there's still a chance that russian troops are cut off and that there'll be a big victory down there if they have to surrender but at the same time some of the articles i read talks about that these are better trained russians like i said some of the airborne folks folks and i think russia knows they can't lose this area uh, as I said earlier in this episode, some of the buses that were sent with new Russian troops are in the southern part. So the Russians probably know that they're under a lot of pressure there. So I would love it if there was a major victory there. But right now, it's pretty tough going. And so we got to keep these folks in our thoughts and prayers as they keep trying to push south. The second thing I wanted to discuss about Ukraine comes from an analyst with CNN and this is Brigadier General Steve Anderson, and I've got to say that discussions about aid to Ukraine are starting to get uh, more and more aggressive, and we can debate whether that's good or bad or all of that in between. I'm obviously a huge supporter of Ukraine. But in the video, which I've linked in the source notes, Brigadier General Steve Anderson, he's retired, he was a tank platoon commander at one point, he discusses whether the U.S. should send M1A1 tanks to Ukraine. And he mentioned something that is pretty obvious that not many analysts have talked about, which is that the M1A1 is much larger. It's 60 tons. He called it a 60-ton beast. He said it may be too big for some of the roads in Ukraine. And he also discusses that the M1A1s use turbine, uh, jet turbine engines, and so they run on jet fuel instead of diesel fuel. And therefore, if you send M1A1 tanks to Ukraine, then you are creating additional logistical issues for Ukraine. So he talks about that a bit. But a really aggressive thing that he talks about, which I haven't heard anywhere else yet, this might be the start of other folks talking about it, it might be an outlier, I'm not sure, um, but I haven't seen this anywhere else, is that he said that it's time for the U.S. to just begin discussing having U.S. contractors on the ground in Ukraine. Now, he's not talking about um, paramilitary you know, folks helping Ukraine. He's talking about American contractors who are many prior service members who can do mechanical repairs as Ukraine increasingly uses some American equipment such as those high Mars multiple launch rocket systems. Currently, anytime there's a repair that is needed, those vehicles have to go 1,500 miles all the way back to Poland to get fixed and then put back on train and come all the way back. And this take, can take up to 30 days. And so he's suggesting that it's time we start discussing putting U.S. contractors who can repair some of these vehicles 
in Ukraine, probably in the capital, Kiev, you know, nowhere near the front lines, but allow them to make some of these repairs so that these fighting equipment can get back to the front in a much more timely manner. So I hadn't seen that mentioned anywhere else. I'll keep my eyes peeled for it. If you guys have, definitely send me a link or email or reach out to me on social, me on social media. But um, we'll see if that's just an outlier or if that's the start of a more serious discussion about putting actual American folks there to repair some of these vehicles. All right, so let's move away from Ukraine and let's talk about a little bit of tech news. I've got an article in the source notes at my Substack about how the Navy is going to be using a drone to refuel um, fighters to allow for deep strike capability. That's a great article. And also in that section, I've got an article from Task and or a link from Task and Purpose, um, which is a military news site, about an F-15 um, fighter that had to land basically landed safely without a wing, which sounds too impossible to believe. But I got the article there, and it explains how you're supposed to land at about 150 mile per hour. He brought it down at around 300 mile per hour because obviously the plane's missing a wing. So I've got those under the tech news. Both of those are two great articles to go take a look at if you get a moment, and um, I think you'll get something from both of those. All right, guys, so it's time for the best part of every podcast, the motivation and wisdom section. As I say every week, I'm just going to read these. You can find all these folks on social media and follow them, and um, I think you'll get something from them. So first one's a quote from Michael Jordan, and the quote is, I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something, but I can't accept not trying. That's a good one. So failure is okay, but not trying, not okay. So saith Michael Jordan. Okay, next one. Fall in love with the grind. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Fall in love with the grind. Next one. If you correct your mind, the rest of your life will fall into place. That's a pretty good one. We all know you got to be mentally tough. Next one. Do it because nobody believed in you. I like that one a lot. I think all of us have uh, been pushed a bit by... Those who didn't believe in us, have we not? Okay, next one. Success is the sum of small efforts, repeated day in and day out. That's another good one. Next one. Pain really changes you. Again, it's pain really changes you. It's a really good one, too. I will say, I think all of us, we've all gone through things, especially emotional things sometimes. And um, if your life's not in the right alignment, sometimes you have to like literally hit rock bottom and go through pain in order to make changes to your life that you need to make, right? I think that's it's a hard life truth that we all have to some point learn. And it really seems like the only way to learn that one is to learn that one the hard way. Next one. Normalize losing arguments on purpose so you can go on with your day. <laughs> I thought that one was funny. So normalize losing arguments on purpose so you can go on with your day. It's a good one. Next one. Always remember to fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. It's a great one, isn't it? Always remember to fall asleep with a dream and wake up with a purpose. And then I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. 
I think that's a great one to win, end every podcast with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. If you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. The View from the Front is a reader-supported publication. The best way to make this work sustainable and to help improve it is with a paid subscription. But at the same time, free ones are appreciated too. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. Can't tell you how much those mean to me. Um, Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the um, social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And so thanks again, guys. I love each and every one of you. Please join me again in our next episode. Stay safe until then. You guys are the best. And as always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. And with that, I'm out.